Welcome to episode 37 of the Media Sport podcast series. I'm your host, Brett Hutchins, and I'm speaking with you from lockdown in Melbourne, Australia via Zoom. I hope all our listeners are safe, well, and making progress towards full vaccination. This episode tackles a serious issue of suicide in elite sport and the issues it raises for those involved. It is prompted by the recent passing of New Zealand Olympic track cyclist Olivia Podmore following the conclusion of the Tokyo 2020 or 2021 Games. It's a tragedy that raises questions about the costs of elite sport and what needs to be done to better support the well-being of athletes and the protection of mental health and indeed the role of critical scholarship in producing these outcomes. I'm joined by Professor Holly Thorpe from the Te Huataki Weora School of Health at the University of Waikato. I'm speaking to Holly about her article published in The Conversation on 13th of August, titled The Price of Gold, What High Performance Sport in New Zealand Must Learn from the Olivia Podmore Tragedy. It's a powerful and important article, and I implore all listeners to read it. Holly is a return guest to the podcast, having first appeared way back in episode five. She's a committed sociologist and thinker, as well as a prolific writer who works hard to understand the complexity of moving bodies and sporting cultures. Among her many publications are the books, Feminist New Materialism, Sport and Fitness, Lively Entanglement, co-authored with Julie Bryce and Marianne Clark, Transnational Mobilities in Action Sport Cultures, which we discussed back in episode five, as well as Snowboarding Bodies in Theory and Practice. To these books can be added five edited collections at last count, as well as many, many articles and book chapters. I regard Holly as one of the most important voices working internationally in the sociology of sport. Before we start our discussion, both Holly and I offer our sincere condolences to the Podmore family, Olivia's friends, her teammates, coaches and colleagues, as well as anybody who knew her. The news of her passing impacted many in the elite sport communities and have travelled internationally. May she rest in peace. Also, if the following discussion raises issues for you, or if you're concerned about anyone you know, please contact Lifeline in Australia and New Zealand, or their equivalents around the world, depending on where you are listening. Holly, thanks for taking the time to talk with me for the Media Sport Podcast Series. I wish it was under better circumstances, but as I hope listeners will find by the end, it's an important conversation that needs to be had. Thanks, Brett, and that um, very generous introduction. But you're right, uh, it is uh, very uh, sad and serious circumstances in which we're, we're talking today. But thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Um, let's just start. Let's offer some context, and really it goes back to the piece you wrote for the conversation. Just for, for those who, who aren't familiar with New Zealand cycling um, or perhaps didn't watch the cycling at the Olympics, who was Olivia Podmore and what unfolded shortly after the conclusion of the Games? Yes, so Olivia Podmore, she competed in the Rio 2016 Olympic Games. Uh, she was a woman sprinter. She'd grown up cycling with a passion for cycling from BMX all the way through and um, was a very much loved member of the New Zealand cycling team and community. The, the pa her passing on the 9th of August is still under um, coronial investigation, but it was a suspected suicide. And just in the days before her passing, uh, she had posted on, on Instagram on social media um, talking about the pressures of the high performance sporting environment 
some of her closest friends and colleagues um, have spoken to the media and talked about how she was struggling with some of the decisions made around selection criteria for Tokyo. Um, supposedly she'd qualified, but partly to do with the, the, the complexities of the games being postponed, wasn't on the team that traveled. Um, so that was weighing heavily on her, supposedly, according to those close to her. Um, but there are also a number of um, statements being put out by her fellow athletes um, and journalists who have been exploring a bit more into the past of um, Cycling New Zealand a few years ago, um, a major investigation known as the Heron Review uh, explored the, the high points of cycling culture. Um, where it was revealed there was a lack of accountability and, and leadership in there, allegations of bullying and drinking and inappropriate relationships between a coach and an athlete. That athlete was not Podmore, but she was part of that investigation. Um, some recent media have suggested that she was uh, allegedly pressured to lie by Cycling New Zealand as part of that 2018 investigation um, into the impropriety of Cycling New Zealand um, and some of her fellow athletes have said that that was also weighing heavily on her. So obviously um, this has really, really gutted the high performance sport New Zealand, the uh, elite cycling community, the, the international cycling community to hear of, of the passing of Olivia and under these circumstances. I know many people who, who were fellow athletes of Olivia, who worked with her, and I know that they are continuing to grieve um, very deeply for this loss, as are her family and friends, but many are also asking questions. Athletes, as well as parents of, of other athletes, are speaking out and demanding answers and change in the high-performance sport environment in Aotearoa. So this is this is definitely an awful and sad event that has triggered bigger questions too around how our sporting environments are caring for and supporting athletes. Yes, when they're winning or heading to Tokyo, but also when they're struggling, whether that's injury, whether that's anxiety or depression or whatever that might be. So it does, it does shine a light on or put under sort of the microscope these bigger issues and the values and the practices in elite sporting cultures and look i think it's really important that we you know as you've already pointed towards it's really about talking through the issues raised by this in order not only to build a repeat but to create healthier sporting environments healthier sporting communities What's been the, and just so we can sort of open that out, what's been the organisational response to the situation from Cycling New Zealand and High Performance Sport New Zealand? An investigation into the culture of Cycling New Zealand um, has commenced. Cycling New Zealand will be working very closely uh, with High Performance Sport New Zealand. There's a lot of systems and crossover there. So the investigation will be exploring exploring those structures of support around athletes and what was going on. And Chief Executive of High Performance Sport New Zealand, Raylene Castle, said that Podmore's death had raised serious questions about athlete wellbeing. So this investigation has commenced. 
we have seen a number of investigations into elite sport uh, cultures in the past, and some have expressed their concerns that we have all this work go into these investigations into the culture of elite sport. We get these reports, and then what actually happens after that? But we can only hope with Podmore's tragic passing that this investigation does not get tucked away somewhere um, once it's been produced. Actually, it's the beginnings of, of a process of, of change. And so I think having watched Raylene Castle and um, the CEO of Cycling New Zealand talking to the press over recent, recent days, I can see, it's clear to see, they are grieving too. They, this is on their watch. And they're, they're worried about the people, particularly the athletes who are part of Olivia's team, who were in MIQ, um, the support staff around her, who were stuck in MIQ, just come back from the Tokyo Games, who were grieving deeply. So that initial kind of week was really about looking after those who were really, really struggling too. But now this investigation has commenced. So we must hope and we must keep keep pressing to see that this investigation does lead to long-term change. So this never happens again. And look, the question I'm about to ask needs to be very carefully put because it isn't to reduce anything that's happened with Olivia in New Zealand. You describe a pattern of reports and then no lasting or substantive change. We've seen it in Australia, in gymnastics, in swimming. We've seen it in US college sport. We've seen this is, it seems to be both a shared phenomenon, but also it impacts differentially and lands in different ways. And it, it, it seems what that, at that moment, it's very, very hard to make the connections because the hurt and sadness, it just, it, you know, it's very hard to make those connections at, at those moments because it's so specific and it's so personal. But given what you've described about the reports, the investigation, it does permit fit a pattern that, that, we, that we've seen before and, you know, we hope never to see again. But within this pattern is an ongoing question about what these moments say about the cultures and practices of elite sport. What is it about these cultures and practices that needs to be addressed in your mind? Yeah, you're right. I mean, we have seen investigation after investigation of sports organisations, elite sporting cultures around the world. In Aotearoa, New Zealand, we've obviously had the Heron Review in 2018 into Cycling New Zealand that identified major problems. Here we are. Uh, New Zealand, we've also had major investigations into gymnastics, into canoe racing, into hockey. Each of these have an investigation into the culture of this elite sport. Often these are led, interestingly, by, by lawyers, not necessarily experts in understanding the culture of these elite sporting culture, you know, environments. And what often happens are recommendations to put in place, um, obviously, reporting um, you know, greater transparency, greater accountability, but often, you know, more psychological support around athletes who are struggling. And obviously that's really, really important. So if athletes 
are struggling with whatever that might be, mental health, which we know the rates are very high among elite athletes, yes, they need to be working with a psychologist. But for me, as a sociologist, I do think we need to pull back that lens. We need to connect those dots. We need to see this is not an individual case here, an individual sport there, another case there. We actually need to start seeing some patterns across these elite sporting organizations to recognize that this is a much bigger problem, actually, in terms of the values that are inherent. These these sporting organizations are riddled with these particular values. And that pressure is actually coming from funding models as well, in terms of these sports get funding, government funding for performances, international podium results. And then that means everyone's jobs are on the line for these performances. So that puts pressure on the coaches and then the the athletes feel those pressures and the support staff feel those pressures. They know they don't have a program or a job next year if they're not bringing home medals. So I think it's not to point necessarily the blame at the coach or the people in that immediate environment. Actually, we need to pull back and see the bigger kind of place of elite sport in our societies and how populations and governments and media are actually part of this bigger problem too. But also what we do see often with these particular investigations is, you know, let's put more well-being officers into sports organisations or more psychologists. And actually, yes, that's great. And that's a great start. But for me, that's often kind of parking the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. And actually to pull back again from a sociological perspective is to ask what's happening at the top of the cliff that's pushing those athletes to the edge where they're either saying, I've had enough, I'm walking away at the peak of my career um, or I'm broken and I can't be here anymore. It's just so unhealthy for my physical or mental health and well-being. Um, Or we see the the worst and most extreme example in in Podmore's case um, who just couldn't endure it anymore. So... Yes, we can put more wraparound support around those athletes who are struggling, or we can pull back and say, what's going on in elite sport cultures that is pushing our athletes out to that edge? And those are the big and hard questions, because that's actually, that's the cultural change that needs to happen. And this isn't isolated to individual sports here, one sport here or one sport there. Um, or one athlete who is struggling here. And that's often what we see in the media too, is um, the media frames it around one athlete who was brave enough to stand up and say, I've had enough, I'm walking away. Um, We had Zoe McBride do that just before the the Tokyo Olympic Games uh, world champion uh, rower, who just said, this is not healthy for me, I need to walk away. And so that raises really, really important questions and, and she spoke out and, and it's so important to hear her voice, but the media framing around an individual athlete like that, often the, the public and even the sports organization can point a finger and go, oh, well, she couldn't handle it. That's the weakest link. She was, she was you know, she couldn't handle elite sport rather than going, hey, that was an athlete, the peak of her condition, of her sporting career. And she's, she wasn't the weakest link, actually. There's something wrong with that environment, with that culture that some of our most wonderful, incredible, talented, strongest, passionate, most passionate athletes are walking away. It's not that they are unable to handle it. It's that that culture is is toxic and unsustainable. 
It's an interesting point you raise around the media because if you think about the latest Olympics and the way broadcasters build particular characters, we get a sense of what someone's like. It is actually very much, you know, you can see where reality television and, and sport come together, that we, we reduce complex lives, internal lives, the communities and cultures that people come from into success driven around the notion of medals, winning and losing, the tallies and things like this. And, city, and, and, and the values you speak about, you write about in the conversation, you talk about the, the costs of the win-at-all-costs mentality, the whatever-it-takes mentality. And I suppose for people who aren't perhaps as familiar with elite sport environments, I, I think there's a number of costs, obviously, but there's personal costs, which I think you've spoken about a bit there, and there's probably more to say, obviously, but there's also social costs. And, you know, could you just talk a bit about if what are the costs of this culture? What toll does it take? Um, because, of course, we, when we talk about the media, we only hear about those who were successful generally. So those cultures work from many, you know, quite rightly, a lot of people think, but what's the problem? They don't see the other side of what's there, that some people, of course, are paid and do do well, but there is a, there's a series of costs paid personally and socially that need to be spoken about. There's a lot in that question, Brett. I'm not sure if I can adequately answer it, but you're right. I mean, sports sociologists have been talking about the sport ethic in, in sport for, for decades. And the sport ethic, actually, we learn from when we start playing sport from four or five or six years old, we learn what it means to be an athlete or to be on the team. Um, so the sport ethic, we learn from the things we hear from coaches or what our parents might say to us. If we, we hurt ourselves on the football field and we, we're sitting on the sideline crying like my son was a few weekends ago. What do other parents and coaches and we say to them in terms of what you're expected to do? And, and we learn this from all around us. We, we learn it from listening to the commentators, watching our favourite sport. Like we're actually learning about the importance and the value of of a real athlete will, will give up everything, personal sacrifice for the game, the suppression of vulnerability and the acceptance of extreme discipline and surveillance. It's very normalised in sport. And it, once we get to those elite levels, that is, that is magnified. But we actually learn it from very young ages. It's, it's all around us in our, in our sporting sort of infrastructure. But at those elite levels, you know, those expectations that an athlete will give everything for their sport, as I said, is very normalised. But it also means that it can be hard for them to express their vulnerabilities or their doubts. Um, often that elite sport environment, and I'm not talking just about New Zealand here, I'm talking about internationally, can be such that athletes know that there's someone lining up ready to take their spot. So they don't want to be seen as the one, the troublemaker or the one who says, actually, I'm, I'm struggling here. I need a bit of extra help. Or, you know, I'm not, I'm not feeling on form here. I actually might need a week off. Or I'm actually struggling with burnout here. Or I'm being trolled on social media and it's taking an incredible toll on my mental health. I need some help here. So what we're seeing too often is that athletes They'll internalise those, those struggles because if they speak out and ask for help, often they're seen as, as um, weak or vulnerable. And then 
there's always that fear that someone's going to take their spot if they get labeled as as the weak one so we do know that mental health among elite athletes is very high in New Zealand uh, research from some of my colleagues has shown that um, at least one in five athletes elite athletes during their career will experience um, mental health challenges um, which is higher than the every you know everyday population which we also know is is getting worse too um, and we've seen cases like tennis champion Naomi Osaka and you know, multi-medal winning gymnast Simone Biles they've been speaking out and just saying enough is enough um, that they talk about the the struggles of the media the social expectations uh, when Simone Biles uh, stepped away in the middle of the Olympics she talked about the pressure on on Twitter of these these kind of pressures and expectations that come from everywhere that sometimes athletes feel like they're putting that pressure on themselves rather than recognizing it's coming from all around them. So the toll that this takes is, yes, we can see those athletes who, who might be, you know, in the peak of their careers and bringing home gold medals, but those very same athletes, the chances are have had times of, of a lot of struggle who have, you know, and we know that it's part of the journey and part of the um, amazing emotional response to a gold medal is we know those athletes have had a, a journey to get there but we need to make sure the support structures are around athletes at all stages of their careers, not just when they've made the team or not just when they're a medal hopeful. Actually, when they're vulnerable, when they're down, when they're out, we need to be there too. And that is a cultural change that needs to happen, not just in elite sport, but also funding structures, how media to tell the stories of athletes yeah, this, this is a, a moment for cultural change because how many athletes are we going to lose to elite sporting cultures that only value them for their performances and them as athletes rather than human beings before, during and after their careers? Yeah, and I'd ask listeners just to contemplate that and, you know, most of our listeners would be aware of this, but for those who are coming from an outside or more of a general interest perspective, you know, elite sporting programs are built. We see the top who make it onto the television screen, but there are many, many, many people behind them who are extraordinarily talented and, you know, given their all and what, ha you know, the duty of care to them and what happens, because this is, you know, I, I think in some ways, this is your point about systemic change. It's like, this isn't just about what's sitting on that very top crust that's visible. It's the entire structure ranging from junior sport through to elite, which really brings me to the question. And, you know, I know it's something you, you raised, you've raised is what is the role of critical scholarship? We know a lot of these things are continuing to happen. And there are any number of disciplines, sociology, psychology, sports science, and its various manifestations, management studies. If you think about, you know, the organizations running, you know, you know, the critique is one thing, but if it doesn't make better action possible, we have to then ask questions about its value. Absolutely. And these are the, the questions that I've been asking myself since, um, well, definitely, every hour since Podmore's death but for almost a decade now I have been asking those questions around the role of critical scholarship 
we call for change, we point out the problems, we write about it, we teach about it, um, and teaching's part of change too, of course, but that cultural change that I'm calling for in the conversation piece is part of a process that I've been working through for over a decade of trying to find new strategies to be part of a process of change because our colleagues around the world have done incredible scholarship for for three, four decades pointing out the problems of elite sport and sporting structures. And yet we're here and we're still here and, and things are getting worse. So what actually, what roles can we play rather than pointing out the problems? What, what roles can we play in being part of, of solutions? And cultural change, again, is really, really hard. Are we part of that? And critique is part of that. But I, I first came to this kind of question or conundrum or problem uh, yeah, over a decade ago where I was focused on a female athlete health condition called low energy availability or RED-S, so relative energy deficiency in sport. Used to be called the female athlete triad. Some people still call it that. But I was exploring that from sort of athlete voices and then trying to recognize how do we bring in the psychology and the physiology. And so with that particular condition as sort of the focus of investigation, tried to work to bring together research teams from across the disciplines. So working with sports scientists and sports doctors. And then this sort of led to, we've hosted three national symposiums in New Zealand around female athlete health. So one was in 2015, 2017, 2019. And all of these were trying to bring the different disciplines together so sociology and psychology and, you know, the, the sports medicine and physiology, endocrinology, these different voices into the same room, as well as making sure we have the athletes' voices and the coaches and the parents and the PE teachers. And each of these is sort of growing and really important spaces for these conversations. And following that first female athlete health symposium, that was where the High Performance Sport New Zealand the medical director, uh, Dr. Bruce Hamilton, was at that. And he also recognised the need for more focus on female athlete health in the high performance sport area. And he, yeah, he set up the, the working group called WISPA, which is Healthy Women in Sport, a Performance Advantage. And I was a founding member of that. A lot, and this is a transdisciplinary group. So I'm the only sociologist on that. And the first couple of years, you know, working with endocrinologists and sports doctors and physiologists and and we have, you know, really robust discussions and we actually have real disciplinary differences on some of these things. We're all passionate about the same thing. We all see a problem. And yet how we come to that is with different, different sets of knowledge, different sets of assumptions, different voices. You know, what is knowledge? What counts? What's the problem? How do we solve it? But that working group have stuck together despite some tensions that we've worked through and we worked together on a big a national survey of elite sportswomen in New Zealand and we made sure we had some sociological questions in there and we saw the power in those athletes actually they wrote into the survey and it was very powerful kind of material in there and so working together and publishing that and okay what do we do with this in terms of education and outreach and, you know, I've sat around those tables and had to bite my tongue very hard at times or felt very, you know, my, 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 my kind of gut feminism, my stomach kind of churning on some things. And, but, I've had, you know, each of us have come back to that table because we're passionate about female athlete health and we recognise 
the, the complexities of actually creating change here? And is it just one athlete who we treat and then we put back into a broken system? Another athlete who we treat and put back into a broken system again? Or do we start trying to do more education and outreach and help coaches, even you know, coaches of, of younger athletes understand that the coach-athlete relationship is always in one of uneven power relations and things they do, even when the you know, little things they do in the everyday sporting environment actually impact athletes' sense of who they are and their purpose and meaning in the world. So I guess I started with some frustrations of how do we create change? And I've seen signs of hope and it's through relationships, right? And actually finding ways to have those conversations of, of people at the coalface who are actually, you know, working with these athletes on the everyday basis who are there because they're passionate about this sport. They care deeply about these athletes and, and these people in the high sport New Zealand environment right now are grieving deeply for the passing of, of Olivia because they're there because they, they believe in sport. They believe in their athletes. It's not all doom and gloom. They're really passionate, really smart people, really trying to do the right thing, but still within a system that values performance and medals. And so I do think working together as part of that change and as critical sociologists or critical scholars asking those bigger questions around culture and around power relations and around the, the sporting infrastructure, we have to find other ways to have impact, to have those conversations with actual people rather than writing in our journal articles and publishing it. And then you hope someone reads it, but often those people have come to that article already who know your language, who are in your same headspace in terms of unpacking unequal power relations and sporting cultures and how that presses upon and bruises the bodies of athletes. I mean, actually, how do we sit in a room with people from different perspectives who actually work with those athletes on an everyday basis or who are in leadership positions who can create change? How do we build relationships with them so that we can be part of this process of change? And I, I turn often back to Elizabeth Wilson's gut feminism. You know, I, I feel this deeply, feel this in my bones. I feel it in my gut that I have to be part of a change process. And it's not comfortable. At times, we have to bite our tongue. But then when you speak, hopefully you're part of a longer term process of change. And it all comes back to relationships, right? And relationships are around trust and respect. And that doesn't happen overnight. This is actually, you know, that first symposium was in 2015. And it was a couple of years building up to that. And I think as a, as a working group under the umbrella of High Performance Sport New Zealand, we are all deeply committed to change change does not happen overnight and we just have to keep coming back to that table and keep working together from a place of respect and respecting difference too. Yeah and I, I take your point and I think it's a really powerful point you make around what's going on in things like high performance sport at New Zealand. The, the problem with media coverage as we know from you know the scandal literature is it tends to individualize. We want someone to take fall. What is Raylene Castle doing about this does not address the, you know, because as you've said, there are people within these organisations who genuinely care and are genuinely hurting at the moment, who no one wants to be complicit. No ethical person, a caring person wants to be complicit in a corrupt system. But that doesn't necessarily mean each of us who work in institutions aren't part of systems that sometimes injure and damage people. 
And, and this is, I think, of course, a powerful role of sociology and transdisciplinary work. You talked about signs of hope, and I think it's a, you know, it's a really important thing for listeners to note, you know, like where to from here? You know, what, you know, even if it is something small or, you know, you're doing something quite large. And I think you've laid out a really fascinating model that others might like to think about connecting with and trying to replicate and speaking to you about how, you know, one, one does these things because they are hard. But we've got a group of people likely listening to this who go into classrooms regularly. And I am, it's been a particularly confronting interview for me in a lot of ways because I speak very loudly about media and I don't necessarily think I contribute to large scale change in any sense at times. I think I, I live in the critique and that only gets us so far. It may actually help explain my, my, my latest environmental term in trying to actually build something rather than just simply indulge the uh, temptation to enjoy breaking things. Um, but it's this question, you know, if there are signs of hope, you know, do you have any suggestions at all for what the next steps people might like to consider, but what they might like to read, who they might like to speak to, the different ways they might like to communicate? Yeah, I, I, this is a really important question, isn't it? I think we, well, this is probably going to get me into trouble, but I, I think sometimes critical sociologists of sport, speaking maybe of my own community, um, we get comfortable, I, I think there's a risk of getting comfortable in our critique um, rather than putting ourselves out there a little bit more, or sometimes some of that stuff is risky. Sometimes it's uncomfortable, sometimes it's unpleasant. So writing for something like the conversation is getting our ideas out to a broader audience. And I know people have different views on that. But since writing that article, you know, it does reach out from a journal article versus something like that. It shares our ideas to a wider audience. I've had a number of people get in touch with me from Cycling Australia who want to go, okay, we've been working really hard on our mental health of athletes and getting support around that. We hadn't thought about a cultural shift. What does that actually mean? That gets them thinking about that, right? I've had parents reaching out, sports organizations around the world who are like, okay, how do we actually start thinking about cultural change here? So it reaches different audiences than say our journal articles. And yes, you get a whole lot of, I've also had some phone calls from people who have found my, my phone number who want to take me out for, for a coffee, who uh, it's kind of a scary, murky kind of territory. Like, who are these people? So that public intellectualism, like for elite athletes, I guess, not that I'm an elite athlete, but putting yourself into the, the public like that or into a sporting environment, stepping into that, speaking into that, also comes with risks and vulnerabilities for us as, as academics who I feel like for a long time I may have hidden behind writing academic prose and the publishing process and and actually rather than living some of that gut feminism and actually putting myself into uncomfortable situations and learning through that in terms of how can I be more effective how can I learn about actually the people who are, are doing this work rather than you know yes we can do that through research and interviewing but actually being accountable to the process as well so I guess getting out of our comfort zone a little bit, speaking to different audiences, trying to be part of a process of cultural change. And we know that's really hard when we are pointing out problems in systems um, that people are very passionate about. And we know people are very passionate about sport. 
So it does put us in a vulnerable position and people will come back and knee-jerk reactions and come back with, um, you know, not necessarily trolling, but nasty, nasty stuff. So, yeah, I, I guess I, um, I feel as a critical scholar, as a feminist scholar who's been doing research on female athlete health and well-being for a decade now, situation of Podmore's passing is is I feel like that's on my watch. I feel responsible. My my scholarship should have stopped that perhaps. Not necessarily right, but I need to lean in and, and keep doing more to try to protect the next generations of, of women in sport and athletes in sport. Like, yes, I can publish more journal articles and books. That plays a small part in change, but what else can we do? What else can we do? And those are not comfortable questions. We know teaching is an important part. But what more can we do as, as critical scholars who are also passionate about sport and passionate about the human beings in sport? I can only agree. I mean, my personal feelings always been, it's not that I don't like sport. I just know it can be so much more than it presently is. Mm. And this is... We critique the things we actually love because we want them to be better in a lot of ways. I can only thank you for um, speaking so ethically, in such an ethical and caring way, um, both about Olivia Podmore, but also the issues that this situation raises. I can, I'm sure all our listeners and certainly myself can hear it. Just if, you know, if you, you think back on the way our voices have sounded and particularly Holly's voice has sounded at, at points in this interview. No one ever wants to be here again. And the question is, how do we work towards ensuring we're not here again? And that to me is a point of ethical and committed scholarship. And so I can only thank you, Holly, for speaking with me and, you know, implore again, everyone to read her piece in the conversation. So thanks, Holly. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Brett. Thanks for the opportunity to, yeah, share some thoughts on this, hopefully some directions forward. But you're right, starting with passion, but also the pain should drive our work going forward, drive our politics, drive our activism, drive our research, drive our pedagogies. I think, you know, we have to sit with that pain for a little while, um, but then hopefully it drives us harder um, towards being part of the process of change as well.